we can slash the, the distance food is traveling by thousands and thousands of miles. Um, if people start eating local, sustainable food. I think when we have the time to stop and think, you know, from these crazy busy lives that so many of us lead, really what people really truly yearn is often that connection to nature, so often the connection to growing. I also know from our customers that there's this huge um, sense of well-being that comes when they, they understand the story of the food on their plate. Good quality food, very, very reasonably, you know, easy to get to. I'm like you, I, I go in search of good food and local food and, and connection um, and I spend an awful lot of time chasing it down and that's not reasonable to expect of most, you know, of, of normal busy people and there are things that, that, that actually need to come from a top-down level. There are things that the government can do like the way it funds public procurement and the way that it um, the way it uses its subsidies for, for farmers and food support. But there are also things that, that we can do as a bottom-up level. And people who do understand the problems, it is needed that they, they take um, that initiative to, um, to invest in the good food system and to support it and to be deliberate about that. Welcome to this special episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and what you've just heard are the voices of several players within the food system, all based in my home county of Lincolnshire. There are obvious ways that becoming more localised with our food systems can be of benefit to looking after both the climate and economic resilience. There's the reduction in delivery miles and waste, and the perhaps more significant yet less understood aspects that come from nurturing the soil and ecosystems through the ways that we farm. Remember, it's not what we eat that determines its impact, but how it's produced. Building connections between local farmers and consumers may be our easiest path for making sustainable food choices. But how do we make that happen at any kind of scale and convenience? It's a solution that depends upon connection, communication and collaboration between people who may be close together physically, but have little awareness or involvement with one another besides. And that's why this episode brings together a number of guests, all located in the same county. We're exploring not only how producers can support nature, but how they can support one another and the requirement for community involvement. Wherever you are in the world, there's likely a similar level of dedication and passion somewhere close by. Often it's just going under the radar. So this episode is really about highlighting the role of all of us, regardless of location, in making local food possible. As Laura will put it, it's about calling out to the curious. I'm joined by Lincolnshire producers Martin Taylor, Hannah Thorogood and Adam O'Meara. And we start the conversation with Laura Stratford to gain insights from her fantastic work with the Greater Lincolnshire Food Partnership. If you'd like to keep tabs on who's speaking when, take a look at the timestamps in the description. And you'll also find some links there to other episodes that further explore the role of food in healing people and planet. Right, let's get going with an introduction from Laura. So I'm Laura Stratford. I um, was brought up in Lincolnshire and I'm currently living in Lincoln. And I coordinate the Greater Lincolnshire Food Partnership. So the Food Partnership is um, a partnership of all sorts of organisations, place-based across Greater Lincolnshire, but then working together 
um, looking at the food system very much as a whole. So all the food partners are committed to working towards a food system that is fairer, greener, healthier for everybody. Um, and part of that is joining the dots between the big issues in, in the food system and in society. Um, so if I'm to, na to name them, um, I'd be saying the inequality crisis, the climate and nature emergency, the health and obesity crisis, and these are profoundly interconnected. So it's, it's holding these together in a way that, um, that speak to each other. From, from a sort of recent point of view, I've been taking a really sort of deep interest in these ideas of the local food system. And of course, your own work being at such the heart of this here in Lincolnshire, it's been a real pleasure to get to know what you're up to and how you're bringing things together. Um, we've, we've been sort of discussing the idea of local food hubs and taking things that little step further um, and to build a system that perhaps has shorter supply chains and, and brings all the efforts together um, within Lincolnshire so that they, they are all those topics that you've just mentioned, really highlighting how we can come together and, and support those, those diverse needs. I thought it would be fantastic because this is, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging topic in many ways because there's so many angles to it. There's so many aspects to the picture that we could talk about. I thought it'd be really interesting to hear your sort of vision, how you personally feel um, that, that a local food system in the ideal world, what, what values would it have and how, what would it look like? So... I would love to see a food system that um, fosters health and relationship at every level. And what that looks like is different from, from place to place. It's really fundamentally rooted in place and in people and in relationship. Um, but, but speaking um, generally, there are a few threads. So um, environmental sustainability is a key one. And at this moment of time, environmental sustainability means environmental growth. So the growth of nature and um, regeneration of soil and restoration um, of, of ecosystems and habitats. I think another aspect is the human connection. And I'll quote um, Vandana Shiva, who's an absolute food hero of mine. She says, we don't need to scale up. We need to scale deeper. <laughs> um, and that's about connection with, with the earth and with the land, um, with our environment and, and fundamentally with one another in, um, in human connection. It's about relationship and not just knowing where your food comes from because of a label on the packet, but knowing your farmer or knowing somebody who knows your farmer and having those kind of much more um, human connections. Um, and then I would say it's, ca it's characterised by diversity. So diversity of scale where, where larger farms and smaller farms and micro producers um, are, are mutually interacting and mutually beneficial. And diversity in in food variety. So we know that there are like hundreds and hundreds of varieties of apples, for example, um, that are available to us. And um, diversity, cultural diversity, and dietary diversity. Some people thrive on a vegan diet, and some, you know, there are all sorts of all sorts of diets that it, it can accommodate and people's needs can accommodate. And just like going so far beyond. What is Lincolnshire food is like Lincolnshire sausage and plum bread and cheese. Like, I love those things, but we can just 
go much, much further than that um, and, and, and live for a whole year in Lincolnshire and have different foods throughout the, the year and the seasons. And I'll give you an example um, of diversity in relation to bread. In, in Lincolnshire, if you go, instead of to the high street, if you go to the, it's, instead of the supermarket, you go to the high street. At the top of Lincoln High Street, you've got like the deli and um, um, a Red Hill shop, um, farm shop. And you can buy like, you know, those real Instagram picture of, of, of sourdough with, with with like the slash and the nice and um, the, 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 the break open and that it does. And and, and and it's white and it's delicious and and and, it, and and very sort of typical of what we expect of sourdough. And then you go further down the high street and you go to um, Superlinks. And at the back of there, I call it the secret sourdough bakery. Um, there, there, there are bakers who are baking like real um rye breads and diverse grains and the more, kind of more wholemeal if you want a, if you want gut health like go to superlinks they have this this huge variety of sourdough breads and then the, you can go a bit further down the high street and there's this tiny shop and, and at the back there's a tiny flatbread bakery they literally have the baker and the oven in the back of the shop and you can go there and you can order your bread and it will be made in front of your eyes in in this um this this oven and and, and yeah it's flatbread um and you, and you can take it home literally hot out of the oven and you've seen the person who's made it with their hands in front of you. And and imagine having that in the supermarket. It's just kind of unimaginable, isn't it? Um, so there you go. In, in, environmental growth, um, human connection and diversity. Yeah, it's so exciting. It really excites me to be speaking to you, actually, because... It helps me to connect that that quote that you did the 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 sense of going deeper. It it really is um, makes it all so real because so much of what we talk about we go all around the globe. We talk concepts, we talk about new ideas, and and to me there's something about food and just getting involved in your local community and knowing what's going on in your local community that's available to everybody wherever we are in the world there's so much human connection that we can achieve through the, the foods that are produced locally and you I mean I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie in terms of I love to know where what what how things are made where they come from and you have just just this short conversation we've had so far I've I've learned something new about being able to go and and have flat flatbreads that are made there, um, right in front of you, and and that that's what these conversations are for. It's about the everyday, the reality, the sort of life changing aspects of the norm of the food on your plate, and it's 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 just really um, I think something that we can get people more engaged with, and so this is this is a huge sort of interest of mine. Um, particularly in Lincolnshire, and I think I would encourage wherever you are across the globe, there's there's somebody passionate. There's there's those little ebbs of passion that that exist within the food industry. And um, like you said, what you described compared to going into the supermarket, it feels alive, and it feels like it adds to our day to day in such a way that the supermarket might give the convenience but it can't give that rounded, colourful sort of aspect of, of really what, what life's about. And um, I think we are a big county here in Lincolnshire. Um, so, and we're not just a big county, but we're a very, very big food producer. We've got a huge amount of agricultural land. It doesn't particularly end up on our plates here um, where, where we're sort of sat. So I think it would be really interesting to have a 
have a bit of a scope of where where things are at. If we're going to create food hubs and a more localized system, where are we starting from? And I think if we start at the worst side of it in terms of what what are the problems that you see within the existing system? I, I'm quite sure that there are many podcasts that go into every level of all the problems um, because it, because they're massive and wide ranging. Um, but I'll give you an example. Um, um, it, one of them is, is the normalising of poor diets. Um, I was in a hospital um, in Lincoln recently. Um, my son needed an operation and at the end of the day, a parent like full of worry was lo- looking for some food just just for myself. And there's a, a big poster on the on the hospital wall of like explaining what a healthy diet was. It's all stuff that I know that we all know that we're already familiar with. We're being educated on it really effectively. Um, but when I went to look for such food <laughs> for my evening meal, it really wasn't available. You know, I went past multiple vending machines and a shop that was sort of closed for hot food but selling lots of um of 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 fast food and and packeted food um and finally got to the shop with with rows and rows of snacks and chocolates and crisps and 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 and, and poor quality ready meals and you know eventually found a salad that was sort of wet and sad and even as somebody who really loves fruit and vegetables and I'm looking for something nourishing and tasty, it's like, oh, really, it's not about fussy people. It's, um, it's about good food being, be, being available. It was really, my, my husband described it as, um, as, as a salad that, um, uh, what did he say? That, um, they looked like an argument between uh, a nutritionist and an accountant where the accountant won. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's the normalization of poor diets. And what we really need to do is normalize healthy diets. I mean, as a parent, like making packed lunches in the morning, what's easy and what's to hand is, is, the, is, the, is the rubbish food, is the junk food, is the crisps and the packets. Um, and actually what we need for our, for our kids is for all of them to expect good food as the norm and, and not be sort of pestering for, um, for, for cheesy straws or whatever they're called. Um, another one is, is the way that um, the food system is literally destroying the environment on which it depends, the soils on which it depends, um, and the system that, that favours scale and short-term cheapness and intensification um, at the expense of, of health. So it's like yield over nutrient density um, at the expense of, of, of soil health, at the expense of nature and biodiversity. Um, it's, not, it's not really cheap food or, or um, yeah, it, it, in real terms, it's unaffordably expensive. We, we can't afford um, the, the, the cheap food system that, that we're in. And it's, it's, it's said that it's efficient, but it's not efficient. It generates huge quantities of waste um so it's, it's not an effective system at all and the other big problem that i see is is inequality that that the food partnership works with a lot of food banks and food banks are always intended to be um, emergency food parcels for really short term people come when they, they if they become homeless or if they're in crisis moment um and they get they get a number of food parcels and they're, then they're not seen again but what's happened in, in recent years is that people are getting referred back and back 
and because people just can't afford the basics on a day-to-day -day level and there's this a debt crisis and um, a ticking time bomb it's been described and 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 that's an inequality it's both an inequality economic inequality but it's also the health inequality and those same people who are facing all the other problems in on top of that are facing the health inequalities as a result of a, of a, of a poor um poor diet and um, but that is not a food problem that's an economic problem and we can't solve the problem of, of inequality through the food system by having cheaper and cheaper food there we go <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've got <laughs> they, they're very serious, very large in, in and of themselves. Each of them are really big topics. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the thing with food is that it's, it, we all need it. It connects us all. We can't really go, maybe we could go a few days without it if we really had to. But, you know, on the whole, we eat every day. Every one of us does. So it's something that if, if there's going to be inequality, it's going to be highlighted in that. And I think what's interesting in this is the ability, perhaps, for going localised with the food system. It provides opportunity for transparency that is just so lacking within the supermarket system. And from that transparency, maybe there's connection. You know the farmer, you know where the food's coming from. But the more that you go in that direction, the closer those um, connections become Topics and problems like waste, they, they kind of, the, the solutions, the resolutions filter up to the surface because you're seeing it. If you are close to a situation, you can maybe pass that waste on in a way that you can't do if the, the, the connections between things are just literally hundreds and hundreds of miles. So, so localization as a solution is it, pretty powerful. And it's, it, it touches upon all of these topics that, that seem very diverse and disconnected, but actually at the heart of it, they're, they're so interwoven. Um, and, and just transparency itself that comes from being a bit more local, a bit more connected, that, that, that can push things, things forward. And maybe we could go at the other side of things and look at where you consider there to be. You've, you've explained already some wonderful examples with the bread, but... Are there any gems here and are there any particular examples of a local food system at play in Lincolnshire that, that's working really well already? Yeah, there really are. Um, I, I'll, I'll just like highlight a few little bright spots that I see. One of them is um, the Lincolnshire Co-op. Um, so it's part of the, the national co-op supermarket chain, but, but it also separates um, for Lincolnshire. And they are um, really making local food visible. So you can go to any of your co-ops in Lincolnshire and, and get a Pocklington's plum loaf or get Coat Hill cheese or poacher cheese. For a period, they were, they were even offering um, vine sourdough. And that's quite unusual. And that really sort of foregrounds what's available in Lincolnshire. And that's come fairly directly. It hasn't gone via China or via even London. or um, It's come straight out of Lincolnshire into the co-ops. Um, another one is that's much less visible. There are just a lot of people just getting on with it under the radar of, um, you know, that, that level of publicity. Um, Boston Market Garden, Greenfield Bakers, Axe Home Produce, Eden Farm in Old Bolingbroke. There are a lot of these businesses that are just on the ground getting on with it. Um, and the other thing that's interesting at this moment of time is um, farmers markets. And post COVID, we've had a bit of a, a rise in farmers markets, both in 
the number of them that have popped up across the county and in the popularity of them. So that's that feels hopeful that people are actually looking for that connection um, and, and that that yeah the connection with the producers and the and the sort of social experience of going to a farmer's market. Yeah, there is something in that. I think that the the whole lockdowns it birthed so many you know new directions in different aspects of our lives, and that um, getting out, getting together, experiencing um, that that social aspect of shopping, which we don't have at the supermarket anymore, do we? We 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 go and we we speak to a robot. We we just have a machine checking our food out. So you can see the the sort of desire for the the farmers market to to offer a rounded experience and community and connection with the producers I, I don't I don't think that there is a clear answer to this but I wonder if a local food system can help to tie together the what appears to be a very detached directions of taking things in where you've got the sort of artisan foods this is where where we head when we look at getting connected with the producer we tend to push the price up not a problem on the whole but it's certainly not really solving the um, inequality in the food system do you think there's any sort of aspects there that that we could chew over um, in in regards to how how that falls yeah um so on on one end of the system um farmers and producers are just very used to being price takers that the supermarket determines what what price they get and often it's very very unfair so that that is something that's that's not desirable farmers should be able to negotiate and get a fair price and a meaningful price um but the danger is that where as you, as you exactly as you say where people are looking for artisan it becomes you know especially if it's organic and local becomes like a premium product and i think I'm really keen to be, although um, it's right that farmers get a fair price and producers get a fair price for the work that they do and they're the real cost involved. I think it's really important not to make that out as a luxury. I think good, good food and healthy food and nourishing food and sustainably produced food has to be for everybody. We've all, we've each got a body <laughs> that needs to work, work properly and be, be, be nourished. Um, but where you have that relationship between customers and producers who care who care about each other, who care about each other's livelihoods, um, rather than just trying to get away with whatever they can get away with, um, then then prices can be negotiated to be a lot fairer. But I think I think the, the social pleasure of food is one of the things in our favour. It's like good food, good food is a joy, right? And 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 so like to be sustainable, healthy diets are sustainable. If we all switch to a much healthier diet, that would have immediate big benefits um, for the climate and nature. Um, but the healthy diet is also like delicious, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 like to to do food slowly and to cook carefully from scratch and to serve that to other people. That is a social pleasure that we can all sort of really understand and participate in it and engage in um so so do that as like your social duty <laughs> so let's go over to the producers now all of these conversations were had separately but it's interesting how they're all making up pieces of the same puzzle those important themes identified by laura the regeneration of nature building human connection and including diversity they certainly seem to be threads that we can follow through all of this Here's Martin, introducing his work growing vegetables on a small scale, just a short distance from the city of Lincoln. 
yeah, I'm Martin Taylor. I'm market gardening on a, a two and a half acre site in Washingborough, Lincolnshire. We grow just about everything other than potatoes. However, we are probably going to grow some uh, early potatoes next year. Yeah, we keep bees, we keep chickens, and we try to sell all of our food directly to local people. We're trying to stop food travelling long distances. That's what we're all about. Um, and bringing good, healthy food to everybody, not just people that have got a bit more money. Um, that's very important to us and something we're trying to find ways to achieve. Yeah, there's really fantastic ambitions. And you've chosen to grow in a way that is pretty much chemical free, as far as I understand. So you're nurturing the soil and you're looking after the life in the soil. Could you share a little bit of um, why that's important and what value that brings for people? Yeah, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's super critical to um, human existence, really. Um, we are made up of more microbes than we are human cells. It's what we are. We, we you know, we, we can't keep killing these microbiology around us and it, not expect to kill a part of us. It, it's, we're killing ourselves, I believe, with this way we, we are farming in this kill everything approach and kill everything apart from the plant approach. It, it's just, it's not working out for us. We need to change. We need to find some other way. Um, um, we've adopted a, a more regenerative approach to farming um, where we encourage swarms of insects, knowing that with that swarm of aphids will come predators as well. Mother Nature does know how to balance herself out. I don't the ecosystem wouldn't work if she didn't have this solved, you know, if it didn't have this ability. And, and us stepping in and trying to kill everything other than the plant is just destroying the whole thing, we, you know. Yeah, we've we, we got we to gotta stop killing the soil. We need to find ways to put the biology back into the soil. Um, we're working hard with ways of cultivating microbiology from the forest bringing it to the gardens here at Middle World um, and using that to boost the immunity of the plants and and how the ability of the, sand, the, the, the soil itself to actually release nutrients from organic matter back to the plants. Um, this is all the microbiology in the soil. Um, Chemical fertilisers work by completely chemically dissolving nutrients right the way down to single ions. Um, that should be the job of the microbiology. That is what the microbiology does. It's supposed to be dissolving those organic matter down and making it plant available. And the more pesticides and chemicals we use, the more of this biology dies and the less the soil can actually do its job. It, I mean, on some fields, there's there's no biology left, and the it's just like a medium that the plants are being held in. That there's you can't really call it soil. It's more akin to hydroponics. They're they're pumping on chemicals to fertilise the plant. There is a better way, and we will we will demonstrate that. 
When you talk about microbiology, you're talking about something that in many ways is hidden. It's it's so tiny that we can't see it. And we, you know, the, the fungus and the, um, the, the spores that are in the soil and all of that microbiology. But how does that impact also on the insects we do see? You've talked about the aphids and the life cycles that that then it reintroduces to the farm. Have you noticed a lot more insect activity since you've been there? Yes. Um, not just insects. We're seeing barn owls, little owls, antony owls, kestrels, um, hawks, buzzards. We're seeing all the top bird predators as well, um, which means that the, there's a thriving ecosystem below them. Um, and that, that stems all the way back through the insects down to the microbiology. The more we, we boost the microbiology, the more we see insects, the more we see birds, the more we see predatory birds. We see dragonflies on the farm now. Um, seen lots of lacewings, swarms of ladybirds. These are all good things, really, really good things. Yeah, fantastic. So along with the lack of chemicals, do you you treat the soil differently with regards to lack of ploughing or um, doing approaching the soil differently in that way? Absolutely, yeah. We, we, um, some people call it no-till, but I, I prefer to use the term called no, uh, minimal-till. So we don't deep-till beds ever. Then... We do use what's called a burfer plough or a rotary plough to dig out the pathways, which chucks the soil onto the bed. We then use what's called a, a power harrow. Instead of um, the tines tilling down into the soil and causing a compacted layer, it gently sweeps the surface. And we can set it to go as little as an inch deep or even half an inch deep so that we're we can achieve a fine tilt surface, um, but critically, we're not exactly tilling the soil. We're just touching the very surface up. So there's, there's very little biology in that top dry layer. It's mostly in the moist layers below. So if we just tilt that top layer, we're doing very minimal damage to the biology. It will survive below and it will come back up into the top layers very quickly. So we, we try never to disturb the soil past an inch deep on the beds itself. Obviously, if we've got to pull plants out or dig any plant out or weed out or dandelion or something, all of this is going to kill some biology. Every single thing we do to the bed will, will damage something. So it's trying to find ways of achieving the goal but but not disturbing the soil for instance we can use um weed fabric or plastic covers to cover beds after they're finished suppress back the weeds pull the cover back and we can almost plant straight into it with, without even raking it um we certainly no need to till it at this point. You know, we, we can just plant, go to, straight in and plant the next crop, which makes our life much easier as well as healthier for the soil. You know, um, so there's, there's ways around it. 
Um, not all created by me. There's some really clever people back in the 60s, 70s, Elliot Coleman and some absolutely inspirational people that have come up with these ideas in the past. It's certainly not new technology. Um, on the contrary, what we're trying to do is roll back to how we used to do it 60 to 100 years ago or back in the late 1800s um, where they were growing far better vegetables than we grow today. I know it sounds hard to believe, but they were smashing it. They were they were streets ahead of where we are now today. Um, we would like to try and find a way back to where they were um, and get such perfection in grow beds where Mother Nature has balanced herself out so perfectly that we don't see diseases or pests on the crops. We don't need grow nets. We don't need anything. Um the French back in eighteen late 1890s had this level of perfection in the one acre belt all the way around Paris and they were providing food for the entire capital of France and, and it was probably the best food that's ever been grown. So what you're, you're producing is kind of like fresh homegrown vegetables on a really big scale in the sense that they're being grown and picked and then off into the customer's customer the same day in a lot of cases. Do you think that this ability to get fresh and seasonal vegetables is, is really important for people? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you take the humble lettuce, for instance, the, the oxidants in it, the, the, the white sap that comes out of it as we crop it, oxidises within, within 12 hours and is gone. So, yeah, there's an absolute critical need to get these antioxidants and these um, really beneficial compounds in the food to people as early as possible, um, which means travelling less miles, for sure. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's absolutely critical that people start eating fresher food. And what about the variety of, of the produce that you offer? Is, is, that, is that sort of increased over what you can get at the supermarket? We like to think so, yes. Um, we certainly grow things that I've never um, tasted before I tried growing them. Um, celeriac, I'd never tried one before, I'll be honest. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I, I wish I'd tried one years before, but um, yeah, they're, they're a fantastic vegetable. Very much overlooked in this country, I believe. Um, we're going to start trying to grow plantain as well because it's so good for people and again it's a, a crop that people in this country seem to have forgot about um there's a a very ancient um vegetable called salsify as well um this is something that was grown a lot in this country in medieval times um it's sort of similar to a carrot or parsnip um, it's a bit thinner. It has what appear to be grass leaves to it. Um, it's got a really fantastic flavour and a flavour that's been forgotten in this country for sure. So, yeah, um, there's, an, there's a, a wealth of new flavours out there and new varieties out there. Old heirloom varieties that we've almost lost. Um, these brings far superior flavour, far superior nutrients and just better all round for, for us, you know. Um, 
So yeah, there's a definite need for small farms like this that can grow things like salsify that do not keep. Which is why you don't see them in the supermarket. Um, they just don't keep long enough. So these are a vegetable that without farms like this, you're never going to see in this country. Um, but because of the ultimate freshness, the ultimate farm to, to the consumer, um, we can make things like that more possible. That's wonderful. And with regards to that, the way that you're making this possible as a direct-to-consumer farm, you, you're actually a CSA, a, um, a community-supported agriculture. Could you explain to people what that means and what that involves? Yeah, it's a direct uh, bond between the farmer and the people that are eating the food. Um, if people have an understanding of where their food comes from and who actually grew it, they'll have a lot more respect for it. Um, and they can be rest assured that there's actually some love and gone into growing it. Um, they're supporting local economy um, because we will at some point be looking to employ local folks. Um, we can't possibly manage without them. So the, we are looking to create jobs around here. We're also looking to create um, an educational centre around here. So there's huge benefits to actually bought, forming a bond with the people that grow your food. And, and in a nutshell, that is what community-supported agriculture is all about. Unfortunately, nobody in Lincoln is aware of the concept yet. So we've got a big... Um, a big drive on to actually educate people about what it is. So um, we implore people to go and check out the Community Supporting Agricultural's website um, where they can learn all about it. But yeah, it's, it's something that is going to benefit not only us, but the end consumer as well. Um, everybody benefits. It's a mutual win. Um, with the exception of the wholesalers and the supermarkets, maybe, who are probably not going to win from this business model, to be honest. But I think we all agree, well, I think a lot of people agree that their monopoly on things is actually causing us problems. And, and, and we believe it needs addressing. Yeah, so in that sense, you're cutting out a lot of the middlemen in the, um, the the supply chain of the food. So it's not only local, but it's passed through less hands. Is that one of the ways that this becomes something that can supply food that is affordable to all? Because I remember that that was something you mentioned at the start of this, of your vision. Absolutely. Um, I don't think folk are aware that there's apps. There's around, around, around about 70% of the profit from any food is actually consumed by the retailers and the wholesalers and the distribution companies that move it around the world or, or the country. If that 70% of the, the profit from the food stays in the local economy, then obviously there's benefits for, the, for everybody. You know, um... It means that 100% of the profit is coming to us at the farm. So 
with only a few customers, we can afford to earn a decent wage. And it, it means that every single penny is staying in, in Lincolnshire. Instead of us sending vast majority of the profits from the food we work hard to grow out of the country, out, out of the country a lot of the time, it's certainly out of the county. So yeah, there's there's huge benefits for us all in the cost saving of this huge logistical thing that moves our food around the country. If, if we limit this distribution network to its absolute bare minimums, there's huge savings for us all to be had. So I'm Hannah Tharagid and I am a permaculture farmer, teacher, designer. Um, I also teach regenerative agriculture and um, and my home is the Inkpot Organic Farm. So um, 13 years ago, we came to a very depleted, um, compacted, um, pretty knackered, arable, um, conventionally managed arable field. And um, through using permaculture and regenerative agriculture techniques, it's now a really thriving, abundant ecosystem, which provides um, award-winning food and has a positive impact on the environment and has created many habitats. Um, and we now rent other land as well. So the farm is now 130 acres. It was 18 acres. And we provide um, organic pastured, 100% um, pasture, beef and sheep and um, a local egg round. We also have honey and wool um, direct to our customers locally and nationally. I love what you're doing with regards to bringing regenerative practices and regenerative grazing to, to, to the land here, looking after the land, nurturing what we've got and working with nature. I think it'd be fantastic if we could hear your interest in, in taking on rare breeds on your farm. Okay, so the, the obvious one to start with is the cows, and um, and they are Lincoln Red. So um, it's, it's funny, my experience in Lincolnshire is that there's a really strong kind of um, loyalty to the Lincoln Red cattle, and a lot of people get quite excited when you say that we have Lincoln Red cattle. We, we've taken it to another level that we have what's called original population Lincoln Red, and that's it gets a bit geeky in terms of kind of the, the genetics on that side. But what it means is... Um, and uh, quite a while ago, there were some some imports of other bloodlines into the Lincoln Reds and um, to make them a bit more beefy. And But there was a small population of of um, Lincoln Reds that never had that influence of those other bloodlines from other breeds. And so whilst normal Lincoln Reds are still pedigree and wonderful, we've also got um, a, a small proportion of the, the world's very limited population of original population Lincoln Reds. So there's just over 400 breeding cows in the world and um, and we have about one and a half percent of them, um, which we're really proud of and they're really healthy and wonderful. But I've always been a bit of a rare breed girl and a native breed girl. And, um, and the reason, there's a number of reasons for that. And one of those things is when you're farming and keeping those animals more naturally, so we keep our animals out outdoors all year round, they never go inside. Um, we also only feed them grass and hay, so they they live off the pasture that, that we grow here. Um, so they don't get any supplementation. But we're also looking for an animal that is going to be hardy, um, hardy enough to live outside all year round, but also hardy enough to be able to deal with the kind of, you know, the trials and tribulations of life. 
and not get unwell. Um, so we're looking for really strong mothering instincts that they can, they can lamb or calf well on their own, that they, they look after their young on their own and we don't have to do lots of intervention. And the native breeds are absolutely fantastic for that. Um, the other side of it, if, you know, sorry for any vegetarians out there, but the, the, the side at the end of it is that you get fantastic flavor. You, there's a, there's a flavor to, native breeds and rare breeds that you really often don't get in the commercial breeds. And it's no disrespect to anyone who's farming commercial breeds. It's, it's often the kind of the very nature of, of trying to meet the market demands. And I think the, the moving away from natural nature, um, native breeds and rare breeds is often driven by the supermarkets and, um, and those markets that they're, they're really looking for one very uniform carcass, one very uniform product at the end of the day that looks a certain size, you know, because we as consumers seem to want to go to the supermarket and see a line of everything looking the same size. It makes it easier for packaging, makes it easier for marketing, for pricing. And often native breeds don't do that. You know, they come in kind of sometimes all weird and wonderful sizes. Sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they're rangier. Um, but what you do get is the most incredible flavour. And, and that's what we go for. So, so our cows are original population Lincoln Red and our, our sheep are a mixture. Um, we deliberately mix in lots of different breeds together. So we have a mixture of Shetlands and Icelandics, but we also do have, we kind of weave in different bloodlines. So we've got a different breed. So we've got some Lincoln Longwell in there. We've got some Norfolk Horn, a little bit of Jacob, um, some even some Manx Lockton. This year we've got a bit of Greyface Dartmoor. And um, because for the sheep, like I said before, we're looking for good fertility, good mothering, good health. But we're also looking. So with that, we're looking for good, strong feet, healthy feet. So we don't have lameness. So with our sheep, we've not had a medically lame sheep for six years. We've not had to use antibiotics for six years. And um, these are pretty powerful things. You know, we've just been through lambing and we haven't lost a ewe. We've got 100 breeding ewes. We haven't got any lambs on the bottle, you know, because we've got really healthy, strong mothering instincts on our animals and really good health. And we're always, as an organic farm, we're always trying to, um, we don't use any chemicals routinely, but we're also trying to um, be able to avoid any use of chemicals in any issues that come up so the fewer issues we have the fewer you know things like antibiotics or chemical wormers that we we don't we can live without so yeah and then just to mention the turkeys we also use norfolk blacks for the turkeys um which are a rare breed and again just the flavor that you get with those are absolutely incredible so hence winning great taste awards for the turkeys and the sheep it's very lovely to hear of your passion for the animals and in particular to understand this idea that the breeding itself, it's, it's more in line with that, that natural sort of process and evolution. So they're, they're, they're designed to in, in, endure the environment that they're living in. With that in mind, I think it, it, it very sort of, it, it corresponds and relates to, to my next question which is if you could give a kind of bit of praise to the animals, particularly the cows, for their role within looking after the environment, because it's something that in conventional farming we we hear the opposite. We hear the, the cows being this sort of climate enemy um, very frequently. I'd love to hear your um, your take on this and, and, and give a big sort of thumbs up to the, the role that they play. Yeah, I think there's... Um, there's... 
a, a fantastic expression that actually comes from the name of a film or the other way around. And it's it's not the cow, but it's the how. And I think that's such an important thing to realise because, you know, yeah, cows have had a really bad press. And so we've um, we um, the way that we farm and the way that any farmer farms is actually much more important about how the impact on the environment and um, and cows are a natural organism. You know, they're, they're part of nature. They're part of this planet. There's a number of different sides to this. And one of the sides is, yes, if we're farming in kind of industrial levels and we've got a, a cow being kept inside or in a kind of a, a beef lot kind of system where they're having a very high input system, lots of grain coming in, lots of tap water coming in. Normally that because the animal is being kept in such an artificial way, they can um, develop health issues and be um, dependent on lots of chemical input as well. Now, what we try to do with regenerative farming, with permaculture and here at the ink pot is we try to replicate the, na the animal's natural habitat and natural life as close as possible. And um, the funny thing is, is when you have a, an animal, like it's the same for us humans, if, we're, if we keep our life as close to um, how we evolved to live, we are happier and healthier for it, you know. So if for the, for the humans that spend a lot of time outside gardening, say, with their hands in the soil and, and eating fresh vegetables or eating fresh local seasonal food and getting a lot of activity and being outside a lot and being in kind of small community groups, you tend to be a lot healthier and happier for it. And that's the same with the animals. So we keep them eating a natural diet. They have their, you know, I've said before, 100% pasture. Or oh, they do a lot of foraging. They have so the chickens and the turkeys do a lot of foraging around the small, the young trees and the hedgerows. And um, and so with the cows, when they're only eating the grass and the hay that's that comes from on the farm itself, that takes away a huge part of that um, carbon footprint that a lot of the kind of industrial cows will have. So we're not importing grains from sometimes. Sorry, that's the dogs just running. We're not importing. Um, grains from the other side of the world you know they're not having a very high protein yet, so their footprint is just what's on the farm itself and um and then there's the there's plenty of other sides to it as well so one of the sides is we the way we graze is called a, a time controlled um holistic managed grazing which is a bit of a mouthful so we call it often call it mob grazing and um so we we move them on every day and um so they'll graze one day and then we'll move them onto a new area the next day. And the area that they've left behind gets three months rest. And that allows the grass to really, really grow and to do what it does best is to photosynthesize. Now, if anyone can remember that photosynthesis kind of equation back from school, what photosynthesis is doing is pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and pulling it down into the roots. So it's an active process of sequestering carbon. Now, I studied uni, uh, environmental studies at uni and um, and when I came across permaculture and regenerative agriculture, I heard the most outrageous claims that, that a well-managed grassland such as one like this can sequester more carbon than any tree based system. And I thought that was that was heresy. You know, that how can you say that? You know, surely trees are the answer to to climate change when actually. Of course, trees are really, really important and do a really good job in in um, in in sequestering carbon and producing oxygen. But so does grass. And if we have doubts about that, if we think about that, anyone who is kind of watching this or listening to this, 
Think about, and you have a lawn mower or you have neighbours who mow the lawn. Think how many weeks of the year, you know, how long the growing season is through the year of of grass growing, you know, and it goes on and on and on, you know, especially this time of year, how much the grass is growing. Well, the grass is growing because it's photosynthesising and so it's actively sequestering carbon. And when we allow grass to really, really grow and really get really nice and long with that three month rest, each of those blades of grass is like a solar panel, you know, that's absorbing all that sunlight's energy, but also absorbing all that carbon dioxide and pulling it down into the roots. And when grass gets a chance to establish really well above, it gets a really complex root system below and it sequesters a huge amount of carbon and drops it into the soil. So what we're doing is actually kind of pumping carbon from the atmosphere and into the soil by this grazing system. Now, the other big thing that people talk about with cows is methane. And they're totally right. If you take a cow out of the field and stick it in a lab in an airtight tight kind of container and monitor what comes out of the cow, it will fart and burp and it will produce methane. That's a fact. But the thing is, is we've looked at reductionist science to kind of talk about this methane issue. And what we really need to do is look at holistic science to look at the methane issue, because a cow in its in its field doesn't live in isolation and so it's part of a complex ecosystem and that keep that ecosystem has many chemical exchanges going on and biochemical exchanges going on and so what happens is when we're creating this really healthy soil from this grass that's having three months rest and the soil having a chance to really rest and recover and not be pumped full of chemicals because it just doesn't need it when you're farming like this you're creating very very healthy soil and in that very healthy soil, you create the perfect habitat for a family of bacteria called methanotropes. And those methanotropes eat methane. So they they breathe in methane and they poo it into the soil as carbon. And so when cows and sheep are grazing, they their mouth is down on the ground and they are occasionally burping as they're grazing. <laughs> and and that that methane goes straight into the faces of those little methanotropes who actually go, oh, thanks very much. That's what they wanted. And so in a grazing system like this, we in each of the daily cells, we can we quite quickly get to the stage where there's enough methanotropes to sequester all the methane that those cows and sheep are producing each day. But what we have to remember is if we've got three months rest, we've actually normally got 90 times the amount of grass and area and soil that isn't being grazed on that day. And all of those areas also have the methanotropes that are still in existence and still breathing in methane from the atmosphere and sequestering it into the soil as carbon. So in a truly regenerative system where you've got this daily move of the animals with a three-month rest, we can actually sequester 100 times, 90 to 100 times the methane that we're producing on the farm. So it's a really important thing for people to understand a bit of the geekiness of the carbon cycle to understand that actually cows really aren't the problem in terms of um, climate change. It's really, really about how we how we farm and how we understand the soil. Thank you so much for explaining that so clearly. And in terms of thinking of things very, very holistically, I see that you've got quite a diverse range of products that you offer on the farm. And I wonder if, if there's something about the pace and the approach of being holistic and working with nature that makes that more feasible. 
because when we think of sort of a very intensive approach to farming, there's maybe one crop on a very large scale and expanse. And in the case of things like wool, that can become a waste product that's just sort of neglected just because of the fast pace of things. Whereas you're making that into this beautiful, usable product. Um, and same with the honey. Um, so I wonder if you if you feel that's good for business to be diverse in that way, or if that's just simply a joyful sort of lifestyle choice that you've made. Oh, that's a nice way to put it. It's um, I think it's probably both of those things. But on a serious business side, um, and that's something that permaculture really brings in, is looking at the resilience of any system. So we're looking at resilient businesses. We're looking at resilient ecosystems. And where we have um, a poly income, where we have multiple enterprises, that diversity, then we have more resilience. And um, you're absolutely right. So many farms have been pushed down the line of a monoculture and they often get really bad press for it. And it's often not their fault. It's just something that they've been pushed down because of the demands of the supermarket, which can be they can be really, really tricky to be working with. I know, you know, an awful lot of farmers who have a really tough time meeting the needs of the supermarkets and it often is it often pushes them into only creating one product and um and so really what we're doing at the ink pot and in many other regenerative farms around the country we we can create a portfolio you know a number of different products that can be available to our customers at different times throughout the year and um and it's it's part of the kind of the multifunctioning element that you know different different parts of the farm can do as well so um you know, if you think of sheep, we have the lovely flavour, but we also deliberately use breeds that have really lovely fleeces as well. So really, really good wool and a lovely diverse range of colours so that they one of the sides of that is that they do obviously produce really lovely sheepskins as well. Um, so a lot of it is about the resilience. But there's also a side to it that I think one of the lovely challenges that permaculture gives us is to say that the sum of the yields is limited really mainly by our imagination. And um, and I think we can often get down this kind of narrow tunnel thinking on our farms and our gardens that this is the one thing that we're going to be producing. And actually, there's a lovely challenge we can set ourselves to think, actually, there's kind of no end to the limit of enterprises that you can run on a farm that can work complementarily together. And um, and so, yeah, we we have the beef and we have so we have the cows, we have the sheep, we have the turkeys, we have the chickens. We sometimes have ducks in there. We sometimes have goats in there. We have the bees, vegetables, and there's and there's fruit as well. Now, a lot of those aren't run as you know enterprises that we would sell outside. We're producing for ourselves, but if we have more people, and that's what we're working towards, is being able to be an incubator system for other new entrants to farming to be able to come in. There's nothing to stop someone running a veg box scheme here or growing medicinal herbs or setting up a micro dairy. All of these things can work in the many layers of the farm and create a true farm ecosystem in terms of not just the biodiversity, but the the opportunities for people to get involved. And part of all of that picture as well is something that we do at the Ink Pot, which is really looking at how can we farm beyond oil? you know, that we've seen the price of oil just go up and up and up in, you know, in all of our lifetimes. And there's there's a lot of awareness about we, we're not just going to run out of oil one day, but we're going to get to the point where the demand, in you know, globally for, for oil outstrips the supply and it's going to just become more and more expensive. You know, it's that thing of peak oil that people have been talking about for a long time. And, um, and so 
currently our food system is so dependent on on cheap oil you know we might think of it as expensive now but it's going to get a lot more expensive over the next couple of decades and um and that's when our whole food systems will really start to crumble and we're already starting to see those kind of shocks come into place with some of the empty shelves that we've started to become used to seeing well so what we do at the ink pot um, is look at how can we produce food beyond oil and the answer to that is really what I call human scale farming so here at the Inkpot we have 130 acres that we farm and we don't have a tractor um, we don't have a lawnmower you know we're proper luddites and everything is done by the animals <laughs> the grazing is all done by the animals the hedge management's done by the animals we don't need to plow um, and and so with that when you bring ho human scale farming and farming beyond oil we realise actually we're at a point where we can create an awful lot of employment opportunities on a farm. You know, we need humans to do the work. It's the way it's the way we've always farmed. And it's just this strange little blip over the last few decades that we've got to this point where we think it's completely normal to have one person in one tractor farming thousands of acres. And that's possible at the moment, but it won't be forever in a resilient system. And so we can look at we can bring in many, many enterprises on small farms at a human scale and and I think in that's an answer to an awful lot of the kind of challenges that we face today of people feeling disempowered in the employment market feeling like they're not engaged you know people can be responsible for their own enterprises and be part of this fantastic food system that we can all create or we'll all be part of. So my name's Adam O'Meara I've been a lecturer for 20 odd years um, and I gave that up in 2019 I knew I wanted to get back into into food or I wanted to do something with food. Um, my family have got a tradition in food. My parents were fish and chip shop owners. My sister ran a wine bar, uh, delicatessen, and she now has a cheese shop in Lincoln uh, and a mail order business. Um, my sister asked if I'd work in the kitchen at the, uh, the cheese society. So there's a cheese shop and a cafe. And I, I thought I'd give it a try. And it's quite, yeah, so it's a commercial kitchen, running a commercial kitchen for this. And it was quite, it was exciting. And everything sort of happened in 2020, in February. So our son was born. Uh, I took some time off from maternity leave, went back to work for a week, and then everyone, and then everything closed down in the country. So I got plenty of time to spend with my son. And also, like a lot of people, I had some spare time. So I started making sourdough again. So just one of those things, interested in making it again. Uh, my bread was terrible. Uh, the bread that I was making just came out really flat and boring. Uh, and I reached out, I was quite frustrated by that. So I reached out to a local bakery called Vines. So we had an uh, artisan bakery that we opened about maybe nine months before that. Uh, and they were in Lincoln. And Emma there said, yes, come in. Uh, we'll teach you how to make sourdough. So I went in there. I had some work experience with them. And then um, from that, I kind of the idea for bread plus cheese evolved. So Lincoln, like a lot of towns and cities, was kind of empty all the time. Everyone, no one was going in during the pandemic. And I just thought there was a really interesting idea to sort of take the, the, the bread out to the, the, the sort of villages around Lincoln. And that's what, so that's how it evolved really. Um, so. My sister, who's in the cheese business, said, why not take some cheese? And that's how Bread Plus Cheese started. So it's basically a mobile cheesemonger. I'm a cheesemonger and a baker, bakery business that visits various sort of villages uh, around Lincoln 
on a sort of Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yeah, that was in 2021 I started that business. So it's, it's and I'm still doing it now. It's, yeah, it's very popular. Get lots of requests to come to other villages, and I'm a bit stretched now. <laughs> I need someone else to go out with a van at some point. It'd be really nice. <laughs> and then the other side of it is that unfortunately, uh, Vines, who were one of, who were supplying me with bread, uh, the business went into voluntary liquidation last year in July, uh, which is a shame. And uh, so I haven't currently, I'm buying from a bakery in workshop called Welbeck Bakery, which is, they're an artisan bakery, uh, quite respected, I think, in the country. With Vines closing, there was two bakers, uh, floating about. And I grabbed one of the bakers and we went into partnership. So we're opening a bakery next month, which is well, in a few days, I guess, uh, called Grain of Truth Bakery. So that's our next adventure. So I wasn't expecting to open the bakery, but I guess it was just, uh, with finance closing, it was kind of, it felt like the right thing to do at the right time. And I think it still is. That's good. We'll see how we go. <laughs> it sounds like the whole thing has been catalyzed without, um, it's kind of like been pushed through without choice in many, many cases. You've, you've had this catalyst of the pandemic and then you've got this um, bakery going into liquidation. So so you're moving forward on this journey and you're just seeing where it takes you in many ways. But there's such a such an interesting sort of aspect to this. And that's that you've you've decided to move from a career in lecturing into a career that that's sort of on the road and connecting with the local people through the, the sort of lovely artisan foods. So do you feel like it's the lifestyle that's drawn you to it? Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, it may be more complicated than that, I think. Uh, just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, um, to my fam- I guess in my family, uh, this might be similar to other people's families, but um, uh, we weren't very good at expressing our love uh, on an, an emotional level, I guess, in terms of, you know, being very honest about it, but we, what we did, I think, as a family, we were, we used food and food was our way of, of expressing our love to each other. So there was, there's always kind of a, and it, it's embedded in us, I think, there's always this care and consideration to food. Um, and it means a lot to us that we present food to each other. That is, I don't know, it's, it's quality or it's just, it's about care and attention to that, that what we're doing when it comes to food. And that's always been sort of a pivotal part of our family, I think. It sounds like you're about to embark on a journey where your sourdough skills, your baking skills are going to be improving after your um, initial stint. But why sourdough? What is so important about those traditional recipes to you? Um, well, I mean, I've always been interested in fermentation, I think. Um, even before this, I was, I've was i been a, a member of an organic gardening organisation uh, called Logo. Um, and we'd often come together at the, in October to do a- apple pressing. And it was just, um, I guess, and then make, I was making cider with my apple juice and just letting it naturally ferment. So it was what was ever is in, in the actual environment, uh, was just, ex- I guess it was quite exciting. It's that idea of uh, things fermenting. Um, so I've always been drawn to ferment- fermentation. I just find it without even realizing why it was, you know, over the last few years or three or four years, I've been reading about fermentation and the qualities of fermentation and how important it is in terms of our, our, the human gut or, you know, and how that affects our biome. So these kind of, it just, yeah, I guess it was, I like the wildness of it and the unpredictability of it. Uh, and with the sourdough in bread as well, it's that thing, 
you know, uh, the, the baker is usually using their arm or their hand to mix the sourdough, you know, the starter, once they're replenishing it, doing a replenish on it. And even the biome and the bacteria on your arm, on the baker's arm, is adding to that kind of, um, I guess, adding to the mix. So I'm really, I just find it really fascinating. It is about excitement as well. Um, food, for me, food is about um, being excited, I think. So um, trying out different ideas and having our own bakery means we can just be more experimental and try out new things. So um, Ralph, who's the, who's my partner, who's used to work for Vines Bakery, he's, um, so he's really keen on trying out new flowers, uh, looking at working with farmers in Arlen County, milling our own flour. That's kind of something that we'd like to get into in the next sort of year or so. That's, that's really exciting, the idea, because there's so much um, wheat that's grown here in the county, and yet it's on such a large scale, it tends to get shipped away. So to connect the dots with that, that bakery that's here locally and connecting with the farmers, connecting with the soil and what they're producing, that, that I think is, it's a very exciting journey to go on. And there's such a, such a story then behind the bread. Absolutely. Just, uh, yeah, you know, even like it's been really fascinating with the bread and cheese business. You know, it's me and Ivan turning up in villages. Um, and we just by chance we were out in Metheringham, um, maybe three or four months ago. And Ralph had come out with me just to see, as a, you know, because he's, he's our main baker, Ralph is. But he just wanted to come out and see what the customers, how the customers were sort of responding to breads. And by chance, uh, uh, I think it was a retired sort of farmer came up with this this bag of sort of black wheat and just said, oh, I grow this. I grow a couple of fields of this. Do you want to try some? And he just handed over some black wheat and some flour made from it. And it's just like brilliant, you know. It's just like, we would never have known this guy existed in our own county, but it's just those kind of beautiful sorts of connections that you can make sometimes and just offers those opportunities to do more interesting things. So that's, you know, part of this really. Yeah, there's something very creative and almost impulsive about the way that you go about it, delivering out to the public in the van. We don't, um, there's, there's not many sort of alternatives that I can see to that. You, you pop along to all manner of different locations. Um, what, what was the decision to distribute in that way? Um, it was about the villages. It was an opportunity for, it was during the, 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 you know, the lockdown, people weren't having that opportunity to socialise. I mean, we weren't meant to socialise too much, but um, apart from being outdoors occasionally. So, um, and we were all allowed to go shopping as part of that process. So I just, it was like, well, if you turn up in the village with some kind of activity like selling bread or cheese, then people get to come out on a, and, you know, and they can meet their neighbours at safe distance. And that's what they were doing. And it's kind of an opportunity to kind of social, for social engagement for people to have that opportunity to reconnect. And it, it had, that's what I think it, I could see that's what it was doing anyway. So I knew it, well, when, it, when I did do it, that's what happened. And people were able to connect with each other again. And they were, you know, and they still do. You know, what uh, you often find when people are queuing up at the bread and cheese van on a Saturday morning, they'll see a neighbor they haven't seen for a while. And it's just an opportunity to engage in conversation again. And I think those are very healthy things that we need as, as people, you know. Um, that's one thing that was missing during that period. So partly it was sort of about that. Uh, and then it's just about bringing out uh, really good bread and cheese to places, certain villages, and just about expanding that opportunity for people to come and buy bread and cheese 
uh, and then not have to drive into the city again. So there's all those kind of aspects of it it's about um, saving sort of energy. Yeah, so you bring in a level of convenience along with the social aspect. It's it's really lovely. It feeds back into what you said about quality food being something that is an expression of love or can share um, connection, and and you're sort of expanding that beyond your own family to to the community and the the neighbours. And it's something that is vastly missing, I suppose, in in our lives. And um, it's wonderful that you said also. At the beginning, I, I feel like I'm, you know, you're ready for another van. You need you need more um, m- more assistance. So it sounds like it's really sort of popular. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, I mean, um, yeah, it's it is popular. <laughs> I can't say anything else other than that. We, we, I go to, um, um, I, I guess, a lot of the villages that I've been going to around Lincolnshire. Uh, like a good example would be Rugby, um, which is quite a small market town. Some people might go through it on the way to uh, Skegness for a holiday. It's one of those kind of sort of middle sort of village places. Uh, they've got a beautiful marketplace in the centre. It's a car, mostly a car park now. Lots of old shops there. Uh, not so, you know, they're not doing so great there. Um, a lot of those shops are empty. Um, but it was just going there on a Friday morning. Uh, the response was just, you know, the first time was amazing. I wasn't expecting such a good response. But off the back of that, the local community then started to organise a sort of like a farmer's market on the basis of that. And that, that runs once a month at the pub car park. And it's just it's a phenomenally successful market. They're amazing. They're well organised. Lots of great stalls there. And that's brilliant. And that's happened in quite a lot of villages that I've sort of visited. It's been a kind of a, a, a sort of catalyst for those kind of reconnecting with markets, market sort of place type thing. If you had a summary of your vision for a good local food system, what would be the main points that you'd like to see in that? A local food hub at the centre. The supermarkets have had it too good and too easy for too long. And I'm sorry, supermarkets, but I think your days are up. Well, we're hoping to do it with the bakery, actually. So we've um, we've taken on a, a warehouse um, in, on, just outside of Lincoln on the, on the outskirts, so uh, on the Allenby Estate, and we're hoping to. Obviously, we'll be doing supplying some of the, the restaurants and cafes in the area, but we also want to do retail from there on a Friday and Saturday morning. And part of that is we'd like to create a hub. Obviously, food has to be moved to some degree, but if Lincolnshire had its own local food hub, there was a unified vision between local food producers in the county that all use the same delivery network they there would be a there wouldn't be a need for all of these small food producers to have their own trucks or vans the the food hub would have the vans and they would just go round dropping off food and collecting um bringing it back to the hub and smashing that delivery route we can slash the the distance food is traveling by thousands and thousands of miles um if people start eating local sustainable food that is possible for us to grow here at that time of year i i I think people are underestimating how much of a huge impact a shift towards that approach could make we would love to be a success 
and to scale up and to be able to bring the price down. Um, the more we grow, the more efficient we get, the cheaper we can slash the prices. Um, I do believe that organic, high-quality food could be as cheap as supermarket food, if not cheaper still, if we can take away this humongous burden that we all bear of the of the food delivery network. We just have to look at how so many of us responded in, in COVID, in lockdown, that I just saw this huge yearning that people had to be reconnected to nature. And I think when we have the time to stop and think, you know, from these crazy busy lives that so many of us lead, really what people really truly yearn is often that connection to nature, so often the connection to growing. And if you look at any any small farm, even the larger farms, when there's an opportunity for people to get engaged with that farm, people run to it. But those of you that have grown your own food, you know, you know that nothing tastes as good as that tomato that you grew yourself when you have that kind of taste explosion. It's, you know, it's fantastic. But I also know from our customers that there's this huge um, sense of well-being that comes when they they understand the story of the food on their plate. You know, people love to hear the story. They love to to know where where that animal came from or if they're choosing a plant-based diet where those where those vegetables came from you know and to have that connection with the farmer I, I get the most lovely lovely messages from from customers saying you know how incredible the food is I think farmers who are selling direct to the customers and have that exchange we know how good the food is that we're being create that we're creating because we hear it all the time from the customers and that gives us the most incredible sense of purpose and and kind of we can go to bed at night knowing we've done, done a good job one of our interests is to kind of get everyone to kind of uh, use our bakery as a hub so that uh, they can expand their well so that their customers can come and and have, not have to drive out to those locations but can then make it easier for them to come and pick up what their supplies so yeah so lincolnshire as, as you probably appreciate is quite a big county the infrastructure is quite hard, isn't it, to capture things. So if we can try and make that simpler, so that's what we're hoping to do, simplify the, the process. Of it. That's what supermarkets do. They make things convenient for us. Don't they? they supply everything under one, one roof. So I guess the hub idea, I think, uh, which Laura Stratford from uh, Lincolnshire Food Partnership is really keen on. Is good quality food, very, very reasonably you know, easy to get to. Who do you consider to be um, sort of, the people that that have a role within this it's diverse it, and that is like what's so important to it i can't say right it's the, this person or this group um but but if i had to i say it's the curious it's the people who are looking at the community makers and the collaborators and the cooperators and the and the ones just curious can can we do this differently by working together so um on one end it you know the established producers being a little bit open to um, co collaborating and cooperating and that's something that's alien in our in us in our food system that um producers have put up in in fierce competition with each other um and 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 opening that out a little bit will be really helpful um but then from sort of the bottom up people who are micro producers um maybe they can take a step up people who are domestic gardeners and growers what is what does it mean to take that onto a small commercial scale or create a, I don't know, an apple juicing cooperative or a honey producing cooperative. How can we just like go from where we are to the next, to the next level? 
um, of, of, of producing food and sharing food and deepening our connection with food, creating space for new um, entrants into, in, in, into food and food production. Um, and that goes right, I, I, say, I've, I don't know why I'm saying up or down, but that goes right to the, um, to the people who are just eating, who are not growing or producing, um, even if it's like herbs on the windowsill, not obligatory, right? Um, but, to, but to be choosing and supporting and um, talking to producers. So it's the community and connection building. I think that's beautiful, the, the curious. To, to call out to the curious, because that's that's where it starts, doesn't it? Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a really, really a, a pleasure to speak with you. That's my pleasure. I feel ridiculously privileged to be on, on your podcast with like so many other really cool speakers. <laughs> Thanks for counting me in. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. There are, of course, many, many wonderful producers out there in Lincolnshire. So I want to leave you with our guests giving a shout out to many more of them. New episodes of this podcast are added every other Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date and take a look in the description for further resources. So let's keep figuring this all out together. Would you have any that come to mind, fantastic local producers that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, Galston Lamb over... um over towards Spalding Way, I believe. In Lincoln itself, we've got um, bread and cheese. Adam there is doing wonderful things and building a brand new bakery. He's going to be producing some fantastic bread right here in the city. Definite big shout out to them. They're, they're, they're very worth taking notice of. There's some fantastic brewers. There's some Bomber County cheese. Donington on Bain Community Farm that are producing some fantastic vegetables. They've got a huge field of um, asparagus, which is a super valuable crop because it comes in in the hunger gap when we need it the most. Jenny's Jams is another fantastic one. There's Cake Bake, um, Rudy's Roots, uh, a plant nursery. Um, all of these companies do the circuit on the farmers' markets with us. Oh gosh! Okay. <laughs> um, who's my favourite producer? Uh, I think uh, definitely. Well, I like the uh, Lincolnshire poacher people. We're really great. Um, we've got, uh, as I said, Coat Hill uh, for the cheese uh, making. So Mary and Michael at Coat Hill uh, with their, their family. That's a family business. Um, I like Red Redhill. They're really good. Uh, Jane at Redhill, uh, Terry. Um, they're really lovely people. And uh, they've got Martin out at Branston Booth with Middle Earth Farms, who does the veg. If you get a chance to go out and see his uh, setup, he's doing something quite phenomenal. He's got a lot. His chili chilies are fantastic. Oh, there's Jeremy as well. I forgot about Jeremy. It's uh, Blue Sky who's doing as he's uh, creating uh, Lincolnshire halloumi. Uh, so he's got a very small flock of sheep um, and he's very ethical in terms of he doesn't separate the lambs from the ewes. So he has a very low milk yield, but very happy sheep. And he makes some of the best tamuli, I think, in the world. So that's my big shout out to Jeremy. He's just out near Horncastle, Ashby Prorum. Oh, oh, there's so many. There's so many brilliant ones. I think, I think 
rather there's the obviously there's the producers but there's also just some fantastic work being done by the Lincoln Food Partnership and I'd really want to give them a shout out because they're doing such a good job of connecting so many of the food producers and so you know I I find such joy when we we have when we connect with other producers so we've got people like Turners of Bytham and we've got South Ormsby Estate we've got Donington Hall but we've got all sorts of tiny, small, small scale growers. And we've got things like um, Corner Farm in Helpringham. There's market gardens popping up all over the place. So I just anyone who is producing food in Lincolnshire, fantastic. You know, all the fantastic windmills that we have. There's these brilliant connections going in the whole supply chain. But what I'd also really like to put a shout out to is all the people who are listening to this, who might have a little quiet yearning in them to to get more involved in either growing food or making food. I know there's some there's some fantastic budding micro bakers out there and people thinking I I would like to actually go and do, you know, grow have some sheep or grow some vegetables, but where do I start? I would really really encourage them to listen to that and um and just give it a go. Don't wait for someone to to give you permission. Just go and make a start with it, you know, make connections, just give it a go. And um, there are loads of us out here who'd be really willing to give you a hand. And, um, you know, whether I can teach you a permaculture course or or come along and volunteer, volunteer on another farm. There's, you know, it's really exciting at the moment, all the opportunities that are happening.